Hey friends, welcome back to this week's episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. I'm your non-diet dietitian, trainer, and host Katie, and this is episode 282. Today, I am so excited for you to listen to this guest interview because you know when you listen to a podcast and you can just tell the guests and the podcaster, they're just vibing and you connect and you feel like you're in the room. Well, I hope that's how you feel with today's episode. I'm actually currently recording this in Florida. I am here for work, for holiday party week, and it's been so fun. And maybe depending on the work that you are in, maybe you're experiencing that same, okay, well, regardless of your work, you're probably all experiencing the craziness that is this time of year. And Joey, my husband, is actually with me and I just banned him to the balcony to record this podcast episode. I'm still trying to work on getting him like on the show because if you follow me on social media, if you follow me on Instagram, he's funny. He he's he wouldn't say he's funny, but I think you would laugh at his answers to whatever. So if you have ideas of what I could interview him on or what maybe he might talk about, I don't know. If you're an OG listener, you remember when Lauren, our, my former co-host, we actually interviewed her husband on CrossFit and it was just, it was awesome. So help me figure out a topic that I can talk to Joey about that you can just get into his brain and a little slice into my life. We'll see. But anyways, so I'm here in Florida. We had a little gift exchange at work and we've got a little party tonight. I'm going to rally, got my, you know, half-calf latte to like pet me up to go socialize. But I want to share with you an exciting thing that I got. I got a happy light. And if you've never heard of Happy Light, so I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, the Midwest. During the winter, it is cold, daylight is short. And really, I mean, if you live in those type of conditions, you are at risk of seasonal affective disorder or, you know, depression. And it just impacts so many different things. And so I'm really excited because I want to create a new habit of using that light, basically when you expose yourself to light, maybe we can get an expert on the show, but when you expose yourself to light, you know, at the beginning of the day, you can kind of reset and really just improve your circadian rhythm, which can actually help improve sleep patterns and energy levels and mood and all those different things. So stay tuned. I want to test it first. And if I notice a difference, I will share with you a similar one on social media or here on the podcast that you can use as well. How does this relate to today's episode? Well, I promise you it does because today, Lily is who I'm interviewing, who you're going to hear from. She's amazing. And we are talking all things self-care and really re-examining self-care. For me, I have gotten in such a habit of just, my client calls it doom scrolling, right? Where you lay down in bed at night and you know you should go to bed. You're so tired, but for some reason, you just stay on your phone. And it's like, why Why do I do these things even though I want to go to bed, even though I'm tired? I don't want to do it, but I'm still doing it. And it's such a pattern. It's so habitual. And we really dig into that and how not just social media, but self-care and diet culture and how just we as a society struggle to disconnect. We struggle to have space in our day, in our brains, and our thoughts to feel the things and I know for so many of you listening can relate to that. Going through a non-diet journey, going through doing body image work, like it's a lot. It is a lot. And oftentimes we as humans don't like to sit in the suck. We don't like to create space because that allows mental space 
for us to have to think, for us to have to be and to just exist. And that really can be so challenging. So Lily Throp, she's a licensed clinical social worker. She's the founder of Throp Therapy, which is a psychotherapy practice located in Midtown Manhattan. You're going to love her accent. But they specialize in supporting individuals who experience eating disorders, disordered eating, low self-esteem, anxiety, depression, and also LGBTQIA-related issues. So what an amazing scope of practice and area expertise to come to the show. Lily is also a certified intuitive eating counselor, and that's actually how we connected because she is also health at every size aligned. She helps her clients to find the confidence to face these issues, to sit in the suck, and ultimately to find ways to live their happiest and most authentic lives. Lily talks about today, she says it more than once about, we just survive sometimes. And really, she firmly believes with the work that she does with her clients. And you know, I believe the same for you that we shouldn't just survive, right? We are here on this earth, we should thrive. And you deserve that. And you're worthy of that. So she is committed to really fostering an environment where the client is the expert of their own story, and therefore has the integral skills when it comes to working towards their therapy goals. And wow, does that not align with what we do here on the show, what we do in my practice. And I just, I can't wait for you to listen to today's episode. So Let's dive right in. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please share it with a friend, a family member, because listen, we've got to spread this message. We have to normalize mental health and asking for help and asking for support. So please share. That would be the best Christmas gift to me. And I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour a podcast about all things nutrition, fitness, and life in your 20s and 30s, all from a non-diet lens. I'm your host, Katie Hake, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified personal trainer. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people and experts from all walks of life about their relationship with food and their bodies. I'll also share my experience working with clients in my private practice to help women find food freedom and body confidence. I'm on a mission to help you stop quantifying and start living. Learn to stop measuring your success by the scale and find your fears. Lily, welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really excited to share about, you know, mental health and all good things, eating disorder recovery, all of that. Mental health, I feel like we can never have too many episodes on this topic. There's so many aspects of it that I'm excited to dive into today. So let's just start with, you know, a little bit of background on you. What is your story with food? What's your personal story kind of with fitness and body image? Yeah. So I have, you know, a history of eating disorders. And I feel like a lot of therapists that work with eating disorders have a history of eating disorders. And that's what got me really interested in this work. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I have my own private practice in New York City. I have three amazing therapists that work with me who are all interested in working with eating disorders, which is great because I think a lot of therapists shy away from eating disorders or think they don't work with eating disorders, but we all do. And I think it's really important for therapists to feel confident and comfortable working with eating disorders because they show up all the time, whether it's disordered eating, exercise addiction, or just challenges in your relationship with food. 
So I feel really lucky and grateful to mentor these therapists and work with them. And I'm also a certified intuitive eating counselor. So in my own journey with healing, I was connected with a certified intuitive eating counselor who was a dietitian in New York City, and she was awesome. And she really helped me learn about intuitive eating and apply it to my own recovery. And once I learned about intuitive eating, I couldn't get enough of it. And I took the training actually this last year, and I really loved it. And I've been able to apply a lot of the principles with my clients. And I think there needs to be more therapists who are certified intuitive eating counselors. There's a lot of dietitians, but if there's any therapists listening, I highly recommend taking the training. And I think it gives you a really comfortable framework to work with eating disorders. So you're not feeling so anxious or scared about working with eating disorders. I love that you brought up that you know, clinicians tend to shy away from eating disorders because they think we don't we don't deal with it. But you're so true, and I, I even see that with dietitians as well. Um, and I, my own story starting off early was like, nope, I I don't won't touch it with a ten foot pole, out of my scope. But you're so right. So can can you go a little bit deeper in what you mean that we all deal with it? It's it's so much more common than than we think it is. Yeah, I think you know everyone has a relationship with food. So it's different than substance use. Some people just don't use substances and that doesn't come up for them, but we have to eat every day and we have to make food choices every day. And we hear messaging all the time from media, from our parents, from ourselves, from all these different places, fitness instructors, fitness programs, all these things. And then we have to make all these decisions about food. So even if you don't maybe qualify for an eating disorder or you know a typical DSM eating disorder, you can still struggle with your relationship with food, even if it's just how do I eat enough to sustain throughout the day or have enough energy to get through the day? Or what types of foods have I been avoiding for a long time and is why I'm not feeling good and I need to incorporate those foods? I think for a lot of people, it's like carbs. That's been so demonized that it's so tough for people to recognize, wait, we need carbs to live. And obviously, I'm not a dietitian and giving any you know, nutrition recommendations on this podcast. But I think it is important that we all examine our relationship with food and identify, am I nourishing myself? Am I taking care of myself? It's a huge self-care activity to be able to nourish your body and know what you need in order to feel your best. And I think one of my favorite things to say to my clients is a lot of us are surviving, but we could be thriving. And I think food is that small piece. It's a big piece, but it's a small piece that we could change to thrive rather than just survive and be getting through the day and be stuck in these patterns. I think working with a dietitian or a therapist, you can start to process that relationship. And then also the like history of dieting, you know, our parents' thoughts, social media, all of the things that we're impacted by. Uh, it's it's so true. We all we all eat. Therefore we all have a story with food. Same with our body. You know, we all have a body so that we all have unique experiences and relationships to food and body. So, uh, so good, everything that you said. So I'm curious if you're opening to sharing, what was the turning point for you in your recovery and, and discovering intuitive eating? Yeah. So I think there was a few turning points. So, you know, in college, I really developed my eating disorder. I was always an athlete and I did play sports in college. And my senior year, I actually didn't play. I played soccer. And then my senior year, I didn't play. And I think not playing the sport required me to figure out what am I going to do with time, with fitness, all these different things. And I, I started getting really obsessive with exercise, dieting, 
just being really focused on my body shape and size, something that I didn't really think about before playing sports my whole life. So that transitioned my mindset to where I started overthinking everything. And I think college is a breeding ground for that because there is no oversight and there's a lot of time on your hands, especially if you were playing a sport and then stopped. It's like you have so much time, you don't know what to do. And I went to college in California and it's beautiful there, but I went out for walks. I would walk for 10 miles because I'm like, it's beautiful out and I want to do that. And I think it became really disordered. So that was kind of where I was at. I ended up going to grad school in New York. And when I was in New York, I was really connected with this particular kind of yoga that we found out later was toxic. But, you know, in this yoga. Oh my program, gosh, wait, can you tell us? Because maybe people need to know. I feel like I can't like say a, the a name. I'm like, practice? I'm scared to say the name, but. <laughs> Um, maybe you can is it like a specific type of practice or is it yeah, so like a studio? There's this woman who started this practice and it's come out to be kind of toxic and there was a diet oh, wow. associated with it. It's not like huge. I don't think like that many people are in it anymore. Like I think it's been exposed, but I think with that practice, they had this like grain-free, dairy-free lifestyle. And that's really limiting. And I was told, oh, your anxiety will be solved if you do this. And me being you know, wanting to believe the best in people, wanting to find a solution, already having an eating disorder, and maybe my brain wasn't functioning properly at the time to make good decisions, heard that and was like, I need to double down. So for mm -hmm. a long time, I was a part of that. And I met Katie Corradino, who's one of my favorite dietitians. She has her practice, um, Full Soul Nutrition, and she does a podcast as well. And she pointed out to me, you have an eating disorder. And she was like, you're doing these things. It's kind of ruining your life. You're like, you emotionally can't handle things. You, you know, are so obsessive with this. You're going on a trip and you're going to bring your powder with you. I went to a trip to Italy and I brought my powder to have every day, powder and water for three years. Which anybody who's traveled internationally, uh, taking powders and things isn't always the easiest when you're crossing international borders. Totally. And I think that was a really big turning point was my friend who I really trusted and really cared about sitting down and saying, hey, this is disordered. There's something deeper going on. You're avoiding things. At the same time, I was also in social work school. So I feel like I was emotionally understanding all of these different coping strategies that we use, whether they're maladaptive or adaptive. And I, I think it had become a maladaptive coping strategy for me was controlling everything I was eating, controlling my exercise. So once my friend pointed that out, I got a dietitian and I really started my healing journey. And I worked with a dietitian and therapist to move forward in my life and let go of all this rigidity and strict rules I had around food and exercise. I also was doing yoga you know, every day, plus walking, plus cardio and all these other things. And now I have a much healthier relationship with exercise. But I think that's another piece of disordered eating that we don't talk about a lot is this like exercise addiction because our society is so supportive of exercising every day. The amount of people I've heard say, well, why can't I exercise every day? You yeah, there, there's a fine line. There's a fine line. And we, we talk about it on this show, at least all the time, because it is you're right. It's, it's one of those things that is so normalized in our culture. And there can be positive aspects. But again, for, for an, on an individual level, it really just depends on the person. And there is such gray area that that we don't talk about. And it often is put on a pedestal when it, it definitely shouldn't be. So we're going to talk a little bit about social media and kind of how diet culture and all those things impact our mental health. So I'm curious, you know, since you work in the crossover of mental health and eating disorders, what would you say are some of the common themes that you see 
clients struggle with? So I think a few of the themes that I really see clients struggle with are perfectionism when it comes to eating disorders, as well as black and white thinking. I think that's been really big, rigid thinking. And then I also think a huge thing has been comparison. Comparison comes up so much for clients. And I think social media has really exacerbated the comparison that we have to even ourselves, not only other people. It's like I was looking back at my pictures and there's just so much eyes on us. There's always cameras on us, eyes on us, selfies every day. We're looking, I'm looking at myself right now in the Zoom screen. Like there is so much exposure to just looking at ourselves that I think the comparison becomes a huge beast for people to face. And then I think negative self-talk is also huge, which goes along with the black and white thinking. But there's just so much negative self-talk specifically for women who I think are so judged and scrutinized their entire lives. And it's hard to get away from that negative self-talk where we're just like questioning everything we've ever thought or we've done or all of those things. Yeah, I think I would agree. Definitely the perfectionism and we see clients all the time with that black and white thinking and that comparison. So you mentioned that the comparison trap really gets amplified when it comes to social media. What are some of the reasons for that, that you think there is such a strong tie there? I think as humans, we just like are comparative, right? Like even when we talk about like, oh, apples and oranges, it's like, why are we trying to compare them? Why are we trying to compare two different things in general. But I think the way we were raised in the society we were raised in, we're constantly trying to do the best thing. And that's from kindergarten on, right? Like in kindergarten, you're trying to get an A. In first grade, you're getting an A. Your whole life, you're just achieving, achieving, achieving. And there isn't really a pause for, hey, how are you taking care of yourself? What are you doing that feels good for you? What are you doing that you're proud of versus our society has told us, be proud of this thing. And I think comparison comes up because we always want to be the best. And I think a lot of our society's practices, including school and athletics and jobs and all these things are all tied to these accolades. And that creates this system where you're constantly looking, well, what is my peer doing? Well, they're making this amount of money. They're juggling a family and also a business and also a pet or whatever it is. I think we often want to be the best. And that puts us in this trap of comparing ourselves versus recognizing what's special about me, what's unique about me. And I think one of my favorite things about humans is that we're all unique and different. Life would be so boring if we were all the same. And a lot of social media is like people conforming towards this mean of like looking similar, having similar hairstyles, all these different things versus valuing the differences and individualities in people. A business leader I follow on on social media, business fitness, she posted something recently about this filter that I guess is really common. I don't I don't use a lot of filters. So I don't know a lot about them. But she meant she made a such an interesting point that this specific filter that I guess is really widely used, it makes women look the same. And it's so true. It's so it's just wild the th- the impact and the tools on social media. And so when we talk about comparison, it sounds like really, you know, we're already comparing to ourselves, to other people in our day-to-day life. But then when we open social media, it's like a not even realistic comparison. Totally. And I think the biggest problem with social media, among many problems, is the filters and the idea that 
you can look more perfect. You can be better if you don't have these quote unquote flaws, right? Like if you don't have these flaws. And I think the idea of flaws is also flawed in and of itself. And it's continuing to put the burden on beauty being the thing that makes us valuable, right? Like if we continue to use beauty as the standard, like, oh, you're beautiful despite your flaws. I don't want to be fucking beautiful. I want to be important. (laughs) I want to be valued. And that has nothing to do with beauty or the way I look. So I think that's Mm -hmm. another piece of social media is just so much emphasis on what you look like, what you post, how you perform in photos or videos, which again, I don't think as humans, we were meant to be viewed through a screen all the time. And I think obviously COVID exacerbated that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And, you know, even you you mentioned like Zoom looking at yourself, that's something that I was not even aware of till I got further training in some body image work that I actually give clients the option when we do virtual calls to to hide their video, to turn off their screen because it makes sense. But I didn't even realize how distracting your own view of yourself can be when it comes to, you know, if you're on a work meeting, if you're on, you know, any type of therapy or, or session behind a screen that just seeing your face, there's might be subconsciously that comparison picking apart, oh, there's this on my face or this on my chin or this dimple, this zit there. And it's just fascinating. Totally. And I think there's just this obsession around looking at ourselves and picking ourselves apart. And that brings me to the negative self-talk, which I was saying. And I think the one thing that I really try to help clients develop is a more positive headspace. And I think a lot of our headspace, again, is like, well, how can I do better on the test? Rather than like, wow, I did really well on these questions. And that means that I'm good at social emotional learning versus like scientific memorization or whatever it is. It's always constantly, how can I be better versus, hey, here's what I'm really proud of today. In addition, I could change these things. But in our head, we have such a negative headspace often that it's hard to even hear any positive talk. And if we can shift some of this negative critical thinking to being more positive and more supportive of ourselves, kind, compassionate, like all of those words, like that would be a better headspace for us to process some of our relationship with food as well as our depression and all our other things that we're struggling with. Where do you think a lot of the negative headspace comes from? Right. Because, you know, we, we talk, we learn about this in the intuitive eating training of how, you know, kids aren't born hating their bodies. You know, they, they're really proud of themselves and, and who they are. So why is it that as we age and as we evolve that we become so negative? I even find that myself, like sometimes I'll be talking to, you know, a friend or family member and they ask about something and I, we automatically go negative. And I get so curious, like, why, why did I do that? Why? It really wasn't that bad, but how I described it sounded way worse than how I actually feel or how I want to feel about that situation. Yeah, I think exposure is huge. So like as we, when we're born, right, we're born, we don't know anything. And then we start getting exposed to things. We are exposed to our parents. We're exposed to our teachers. I walk around and I see diet culture everywhere. It's on billboards. It's in magazines, obviously. It's on social media. It's also our mom looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I look fat in this. Like that impacts our view. Like when we look in the mirror, we're thinking, oh, what am I supposed to say that's critical about myself? Because that's what I've watched every other person in the world do on TV and in a million things. I mean, not to talk about Taylor Swift, but Taylor Swift just came out with a video 
you know, a little bit ago where she put the word fat on the scale when she stepped on it. And it's like, no one on your team noticed that you have a bazillion dollars. No one on your team said, hey, representing the word fat and putting that on the scale is a reminder to every fat person in this world that your biggest fear is being fat. That's not fair. You don't need to be promoting that. You don't need to be promoting what you think is I don't even want to say good and bad, but you know, we have this morality built into things like these people are good, these people are bad. They're just people. There's no inherent good or bad in people, I believe, anyways. So I think it's important that we just recognize the exposure we have to so much diet culture. I mean, diet culture is a 70 billion dollar or 80 billion, whatever it is now, business. It's it's coming at us from all sides. And then, you know, I really appreciate that you're a fitness instructor because it's in fitness too. It's like every time you go to a fitness class, it's like, oh, you want to get those flat bellies or whatever they're saying. And that's really uncomfortable to hear when you're just trying to process, hey, I'm a woman who has like a uterus and things that stick out of my <laughs> stomach like a normal person. Um, right. And I think it's really the exposure is just so common. It's It's all over the place. It's really hard to say I'm going to push away from diet culture. Like that's the first principle, right? Rejecting the diet mentality. And I think that is one of the hardest principles because there's so many people who are going to come against you and say, no, diets are good. You can't be right. And that's, it's just really exhausting to go against all of those other influences and believe that you can live diet free and be healthier and feel better and feel free. Yeah. And I think there's so many layers and complexities to diet culture. Like it's, it's so sneaky. And like you said, it's everywhere. And so sometimes at first it can be really hard to identify how it even shows up in, in your life or in your environment. So, you know, we've obviously talked about some of those themes, but how would you say the, do you have any data or even just like client case studies of how social media truly impacts our mental health? You know, I think we, we all know, we hear about it, but like, Tell us like what damage is it really doing? Because it's it's so hard to stop. Yeah, I don't have any specific data, but I think generally we know that people spend a ton of time on their phones, on social media. And I think if we think about the time that we're spending scrolling, we're consuming, we're exposing ourselves to all of these sensory things, right? Sensory overload is happening by watching a two-second video, watching a three-second video, watching a story, watching a photo, reading a comment. These are exposures. And I feel like we don't have a lot of time where we're just like not being exposed to anything. So I think this is why people turn to yoga or meditation because that's a moment where you're not consuming anything. And I think the biggest problem that I see is just this like, it's not addiction, but it's this obsession. It's this inability to turn away. Like you said, it's like you're not feeling good when you're doing it, but you're also mm -hmm. not stopping it. And you, you're you scared of stopping it. Like, well, what if I didn't look at TikTok? It's like, what if you didn't? Maybe expose yourself to a whole day where you don't open your Instagram or your TikTok or your Twitter. Did the world fall down? Did something happen? What what happened? You know, Did you feel better? Did you feel like, oh, I made time to cook. I made time to read. I made time to knit. I made time to do these things that are self-care activities because social media is not a self-care activity. I do think in small doses, we can consciously consume things that feel good, like looking at a profile that's posting really positive things or whatever, but it's not necessary. Yes. Yeah, can you say that again, what you just said? Social media is not a self-care activity. And that's really confusing. Everybody hear that, hear that and repeat it. Rewind. Play it again. <laughs> totally. It's it's really hard because 
it is an expression. Like I totally get that it came out and from a place of people wanting to share photos, wanting to share exciting things, but it's honestly just gotten so toxic with ads and influencers. And I don't want to harp so negatively on social media. I think there's one beautiful thing I can see about social media, and it's that it's allowed people to connect who all have similar experiences about something. You know, for example, some of my autistic clients have a really hard time connecting with other people socially, but when they follow another autistic person on social media, they're able to see that they have similar experiences to them. This is a way to work with this particular problem. This is a way to just learn how to work with my own thoughts and my own processes. So I feel like that's an area where I think it is a good thing and there can be good from it, but there's just so many negative aspects that like it's hard to even get to that positive aspect. Yeah. You bring up such a good point that it's it really ultimately goes back to that exposure and that consistent exposure really does impact us on a subconscious level, maybe in a sense. And you're right. I think there is this fear of like having space. Like I'm curious if you have experiences with your clients or if you've noticed, like, is there a correlation between, you know, that high exposure to social media, that go, go, go and burnout? And do some of those kind of symptoms cross over? Definitely. Yeah. I think people are feeling burnt out from work and then they go to social media and then they're just experiencing more burnout. And I think burnout is a really big problem right now, especially in the post-COVID world. There's like all this burnout because for two years we weren't doing anything. Now we have this whiplash. We're back to everything and there's high expectations around it. I think the problem with burnout is it's really hard to get out of it. And when you're in burnout and you're experiencing burnout, it, it's really hard to crawl out. And I think social media makes it even harder, right? Because that's already addictive and it's hard to get away from if you could just put your phone down and sit in the discomfort. Because it will be uncomfortable when you first decide, I'm not going to do social media today, or I'm even going to delete my accounts or move them to a different page on my screen. The first immediate thing you will feel is discomfort. Anytime we take away a coping strategy, whether it's eating disorder behaviors or social media, any of these coping strategies, the initial response is discomfort. And I think that's why people go back so often, right? It's just like avoiding that discomfort is worth everything in the world. If you can just sit in the discomfort for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, you, five minutes, I don't care how long it is, you will come up with something else. You will think about a thought you haven't thought about in years. You will think about writing a book or something you used to think about all the time, but your brain has not had space because it's so taken up by the social media that you've been consuming. Yeah. And I, I wonder, I just get curious about you know the clients who I've worked with over the years and how maybe social media can truly impact their progress. Because when we, when we think about you know, the work that it takes, the mental, emotional work that it really does take to heal your relationship with food and, and exercise in your body. If we're constantly being exposed to these messages, it's like, what impact is that doing on us to really have even, like you said, the space or the bandwidth to sit with our thoughts, to sit in that discomfort and and process, you know, the work that we're doing. Totally. And also just to hear your own thoughts. I'm mm. constantly hearing music, podcasts, other things. When do I get to hear my voice? When do mm -hmm. I get to hear what my gut believes, what my values are? I need to pause and take time away 
to hear my own voice. And that's why it's hard for people to reject the diet mentality, I think, because we're constantly oh, yes. hearing everything else. And I think if you could hear your own voice and actually logically think about this, you would be able to get to a different solution and a different answer. But we're so in it that we never take enough time away from it to actually develop our own thoughts about it. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful and, and so interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm having, you know, I need to sit alone with my own thoughts on all this too. You know, I, I wonder if that's why before we clicked record, you're we talking about podcasting and, you know, for those listeners, I've, we've had the show for, you know, over five years now. And I'm wondering if that's a connection or a reason for me personally, why I feel so connected to podcasting. And I love listening to podcasting because maybe it's a, you know, it's not fully removal, but it's kind of a stepping stone away from that visual audio. You know, you can you can listen to something and be in nature. You can listen and kind of process things differently versus a screen is just a little bit different. Definitely. I, I think there's a place for podcasts. There's a place for Instagram. There's a place for Twitter. There's a place for all of these platforms, but it's just in smaller doses than how we're having mm -hmm. it. And I think it's really important that people have a variety of coping strategies. Recently, I've been noticing it's like running is your coping strategy and that's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. How about yeah. food? Food can be a coping strategy. Knitting can be a coping strategy. Showering can be a coping strategy. <laughs> There's so many different coping strategies that I think we need a multitude. And what happens with social media is it becomes your only outlet. How many people have 50 apps on their phone and they only open social media? Like it's really interesting to look at your time that you use your apps. Just personally in transparency, I set all of my social media platforms, which I think I only have three, I set them all to 30 minutes a day. And, you know, I think that's enough time to consume a little bit, but it's not so much that it's taking up a bigger portion of my day than anything else. And I think that to me feels really important. I highly recommend taking a look. How much time are you actually spending? And also, are you doing it before like 9am? Like if I hit the 30 minutes before 9am, I'm like, whoa, what's going on? What am I feeling? What's going on? If it's 9pm, I'm like, great. I did it in small doses all throughout the day. And now it's time for bed. Like you can track that with yourself and become aware of your use of social media. It's so interesting that you bring that up and the irony of, I saw this on Instagram and I saved it because I wanted to go back and read it, but I don't know where it was. Someone had posted, you know, a poll. It was like, when do you check your email or when do you open your phone and check your email? It was like first thing in the morning. It kind of gave these increments before noon. I think the post was about, you know, not checking your email before noon. And the majority of the people on this poll voted like first thing in the morning. And I know that that is such a common trigger or challenge for people that they early in the morning, their alarm goes off and they open their phone. And like they instantly go to social media or they instantly check their email or their team's messages or Slack or whatever it is. And then same thing in the evening, right? Like they crawl into bed, they open up their phone. I have a client who she said she calls it the doom scrolling. And I guess that, that must be like a thing, but she's like, I don't, I, I just don't know how to stop. Like there's a pieces of it that I enjoy it because I, you know, sending TikToks to my friends across the country who, you know, we're both moms and it's really exhausting. It's, we don't want to sit there and talk on the phone because that feels too exhausting, but this does make us feel somewhat connected. And so do you have any tips for people who they struggle with, just like you said, creating that space or pausing or like it's very reactive, their use of their phone and, and social media. 
Yeah, definitely. I think boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. And I can't say that word enough. Boundaries are so important. We throw that word around a lot. But I think in this case, it really is relevant. Like setting boundaries and identifying what you want to change about your social media use is important. So I think people will say, oh, I wish I used it less, but they don't take actual tangible time and say, my goal is for the first thing that I do in the morning to be brushing my teeth. Brushing your teeth is already a really good routine that you're in, right? Like I love the idea of like linking routines together. I don't, I think it's really hard to start something randomly like, oh, in the middle of the day, I'm going to do this weird thing. No, you're not. You're (laughs) not going to do it. But when you're brushing your teeth, can you look in the mirror? Can you say three things you're grateful for? That's already a time that you've set aside. Instead of you click your alarm off and you check your social media, click your alarm off, turn your phone upside down, which is what I try to do, and go brush your teeth or have your morning coffee or whatever is the thing that brings you joy in the morning, try doing. Because I think looking at your phone, probably not bringing you joy. Maybe for some people it is. Message me if that's true. I'd love to hear your experience. (laughs) But I think for most people, it's not that. So for me, I love my morning coffee. Like I think brushing my teeth and my morning coffee are two things that I try to just like consistently do before I start the doom scrolling, which I do too. I'm not saying I never do that, but maybe it's not the first thing I do. And when I'm doing it, I try to check in with myself and say, hey, how is this feeling? Is there something Mm -hmm. else I could be doing that I would enjoy more? Is there something else that requires my attention, like cooking breakfast? What can I be doing besides this? And sometimes people just turn to social media out of boredom. So I think finding new hobbies, finding new you know, ideas of things you want to work on can also really help avoid the doom scrolling. But I, I think boundaries are the biggest one. And I, I think you can set boundaries with times of day. You can set boundaries with the amount of time you spend. You can set boundaries with which people you follow. You can consciously mm. consume and say, I'm going to clear out all the people that are saying all these toxic things and follow people who lift me up and make me feel happy. So I think there's a lot of ways to set boundaries. It's just about identifying what are your goals? Do you want to feel happier and more free and not connected to your phone? So it's it's first identifying how you want to feel and then kind of working backwards and, and deciding what that spectrum looks like for you of creating those boundaries. Is it time limits? Is it, you know, whatever habit stacking we're all about to hear? I wonder too, if a lot of people struggle with this specific topic because it's it's personal boundaries like it's boundaries that ultimately in a sense it's it's only impacting me right now in the moment right it's especially if you know anybody listening doesn't have kids or doesn't have animals you know they don't have they've got this free space so it's it feels like free space but then they're clouding it up with with social media but it's hard to honor those boundaries when it's like but what else could i be doing Totally. And this goes back to what we were talking about before, this negative self-talk. So when it's about us, we're not making a change. But when it's about Mm. someone else, we're eager to make a change or try to make things better for someone else. Oh, I heard about this issue and I want to make a difference. Why don't we want to make a difference for ourselves? Why don't we want to take a stand against things that are negatively impacting us? It's just a lot harder to build up that motivation and feel confident that you can make the change. And I think that is why working with a therapist, working with a dietitian gives you that support and accountability. People always say like, oh, it takes a village and we all just take that for granted. But it's true. Why are we trying to face these things alone? These are really big, giant conglomerates that are affecting us negatively 
find a team, find friends, find a support in some way that can help you navigate setting these boundaries. Identifying what boundaries need to be set is not easy. It's not an easy thing. Um, One of my favorite books is Setting Boundaries Will Set You Free by Nancy Levin. That's like a great place to start if you're just like, what boundaries do I even need? What are boundaries? I think that's a really great place to start. But finding support is huge too. Yeah. You bring up a good point. I think for me, for me personally, I do a really good job of setting boundaries for other people, like, like in my relationships and at work and things like that. But you, you're so right. It's, it could be so challenging for us personally to set boundaries for ourselves. And I think for anybody healing through diet culture, that's muddy. And that's something you can definitely go deep in, into work with a therapist on because it's like, that there's just so many layers to it. It's so interesting. Totally. One of my favorite words is it's nuanced. Nuance is my favorite yes, word. Yes. And that's exactly <laughs> what you're describing. Like there is so yeah. much nuance and there's so much personal nuance too. Everyone's story is different. Everyone's mm-hmm. past experiences are different. Everyone's future is different. So I think using your own values and recognizing what you want to change is more important than listening to me or you say, hey, this is what you should change. It's like, actually, I need to hear what does Lily think would make her life better? And then how can I implement those changes? And I'm going to ask Katie how she can help me help myself make those changes versus Katie thinks social media is bad, so I shouldn't use social media. We need to think for ourselves. And that's a huge part of it. Mm. Yeah. Thinking for ourselves. And you're right. It's so it's so hard to do if we're constantly inundated with messages. You brought up a really great tip about, you know, kind of unfollowing people who who don't align with your values or you recognize make you feel negatively and kind of feed that negative self-talk. Do you have any other tips for listeners to just protect their energy, protect, you know, maybe they're going through the intuitive eating journey and it's like, ah, there's just, we're pulled in so many directions. How can somebody stay focused and committed to those boundaries? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I kind of wish I had a better answer. I think one of my answers is we can't control the world around us. We cannot control triggers. You're not going to be able to be in an environment that's perfect for you to recover in. And you are not going to be able to get rid of diet culture. I wish we could, but it's just not going to happen in the next few years. So in order to protect your energy, again, you have to find what works for you and you have to find your strategies. I think unfollowing people is one of them. I think identifying what you prefer to see and what makes you feel good is a huge one. I also think self-care is huge. And I think identifying what you need in your week to feel good. When you get to Friday, are you feeling energized and excited or are you feeling exhausted and like you couldn't do anything for another minute? And I think working with, again, a therapist, a dietitian, maybe it's even a physical therapist, maybe it's acupuncture, maybe it's your own self-care routine that you do at home, you have to take care of you. And I think if you're going to protect your energy, the best way to do it is taking care of yourself, taking better care of yourself than you've been doing. It's really hard to say what's going to work for any individual because I just believe in an individualized approach. So for me, something that's helpful is always like deep breathing. Like that is something that's free, accessible. I can do it literally anywhere on the subway, anywhere I want. That is huge. I also really like this strategy of like textures. So like if I'm somewhere and 
I see a diet ad and I'm just like, ugh, that's so annoying. I might like mm-hmm. touch my shirt and just like feel that texture and be like, you know what? I'm here. This is me. I have my own beliefs about things. I might touch my hair, touch the subway car, maybe not during COVID. But I think, <laughs> you know, coming back to yourself is really important. And that's why I like deep breaths. I like these like tangible solutions. Even giving yourself like a little hand massage can be really helpful just to like bring you back into your body. And I think that to me, feels the most important when it comes to your energy. It's just like your energy is inside of you. So shutting out that like external stuff and being able to turn inward is really important. And you can access that a lot of different ways. Yeah. So it sounds like really the first step is we've got to build the awareness. Once we recognize the awareness is there, then we need to you know identify how do we want to feel? And then third, kind of pick or maybe start experimenting really with different strategies, different boundaries really put into action to see if that, you know, again, keep experimenting with what works for you because what work, you know, some of these tips that you said, which are awesome tips, they may or may not work for you and you have to keep experimenting. Totally. I love that word experimenting. I think that's a really important way to put it is you get to experiment. Be excited about that. You get to choose for you. You know, people are always like, I want to grow up. I want to be an adult. I want to have choices. And then when they get there, like, ah, I want to be a kid. Use your power, use your ability to choose and find what works for you. Like that is your superpower. You are able to do that. We talked about, you know, creating those boundaries and taking those action steps. And I think one thing for people maybe who are in diet culture, they, they recognize patterns of disordered eating, but they don't identify with having an eating disorder. You know, life is good, not really any big complaints, but they still feel that pull to see a therapist. You know, what do you think holds, I have this conversation with a girlfriend of mine all the time because she says, you know, I I really do want to go to therapy, but it always ends up kind of falling to the bottom of the list. So what do you think really holds people back from taking action to meeting with, you know, a therapist or, or mental health counselor. Yeah, I think that's a good point that a lot of people want support, they want help, but it takes a lot of energy and effort to get that support. I think there's a lot of layers to that. I, I think the first layer is that it's really hard to find a therapist right now. And I think that can be a major challenge. I think finding the right fit is really important. So if you find a therapist where you vibe with them, you like their voice, you like the way that they're talking with you and making you feel, you're going to feel a lot more motivated to stay. But to get in the door, it's a big effort. You got to search, you got to call a lot of places, people aren't going to call you back. That's a big thing. And then I think there's this stigma still with therapy that it's for people who are really ill. It's for people who are like really suffering. Therapy is for anyone. Therapy is for anyone who is looking to explore their relationship with themselves, with food, with anxiety, with society, with anything. And I think what I love about therapy is that it's carving out 45 minutes for you. It's the one time in your week where you are going to put your phone down, you're going to leave all your shit at the door, you're going to come in and you're going to spend 45 full minutes thinking and talking about you. I think what prevents people from wanting to do that is also the fear of change. And there's a lot of fear. Like, what if I change and I hate it? What if I change and I lose this thing? And that might be a thin body. What what if I lose that? You have Mm -hmm. to sit in that fear and you have to come in and experience that to know how much you're going to gain 
by losing whatever that thing is you're holding on to so tightly. If you are holding on to something so, so tightly that it's preventing you from living your life, you need to experience the discomfort of thinking about it and sitting with it so you can feel what it feels like to let go. And I'm not saying that's easy. And I think it's really important to recognize that it doesn't happen overnight. Therapists are really good at building the relationship before getting too deep with anything. In my sessions, I try to say, you know, the session's 45 minutes. Let's spend 15 15 minutes doing the really hard stuff. Let's sit in the shit. Like, let's do that hard stuff. And then the rest of the time, we can talk about positive things. We can talk about TV shows. We can keep it light. And I think humans can handle about 15 minutes of really uncomfortable stuff. For some people, it's more. For some people, it's less. You can work with a therapist to identify how you work best with a therapist. And I think a lot of therapists use an individualized approach, which allows them to show up differently for everyone. So keep in mind that therapy is there to help you, not to call you out, not to make you feel bad, not to judge your choices. It's to help you thrive. And again, I'm coming back to that word. A lot of people are surviving. I I think they are surviving and that's wonderful and amazing, but they could be thriving. And I believe people deserve that. I just think everyone deserves an opportunity to thrive. I agree with you a a thousand percent. And I think that's a really good action step for our listeners who struggle with that binary thinking, who struggle with black and white and, you know, all these things we're talking about, creating boundaries, holding yourself accountable. And if you've never been to therapy and you've been curious about it, let that be a motivator for you of this is a way to hold myself accountable to creating space for me to exploring my thoughts, because I know based on my personality and my experience, it's really hard for me to have space in my schedule, to have space in my thinking, to have quiet time. So why don't I at least make an outstanding appointment you know, with a professional that, that's going to hold me accountable to doing that? Definitely. And find the right person. That I can't say that enough. You have to find the right person. And it takes time to talk to a lot of different therapists. And I totally recognize that's exhausting, but you'll know it's a fit when it's a fit. It will feel like it. It will feel like, whoa, I feel hopeful. I feel excited. I feel like this person can really help me. I feel like this person gets me. I feel like, yeah, just excited and exuberant about this experience. It's it, If you're in a really deep depression, it's hard to feel that way, but you got to feel some spark. You have to feel something that makes you think, this is the right fit for me. There are so many people who are not experiencing good outcomes in therapy, and it's probably because it's a bad fit. Thank you for sharing some of those specific examples of like the feelings that people should feel, because I think that can be also be another barrier, another challenge with either switching providers or you know, just the whole journey of of finding a right fit is maybe people don't know, like you said, they're surviving, not thriving, and they don't even know what what a great relationship could feel like that that really has that synergy. Yeah. And that's a good point. Don't be afraid to switch therapists. Also, if it's not working, switch. And what's great about switching therapists is you get to tell your story again. I think there's power Mm -hmm. in that. I think it's really special to start with a new provider and tell your story again. And when you're telling your story, notice, oh my God, I have changed the way I think about this. Even for my short stint with the last therapist, like I've changed. And now I can come to this new therapist with hey, here's where I'm still struggling. And I, I I love the idea of people telling their story. I think that's something we don't do enough of. We tell this fake story on social media, but we don't really sit down and tell our full story. And there's there's power in that. It's important. 
Yeah. It's like a technique that we learn, you know, as, as dietitians, nutrition counselors is that, you know, we, we change by hearing ourselves think by speaking it ourselves. There's so much more power in that and, and processing, like you said earlier, versus somebody else just telling us what to do. Totally. Narrative storytelling and narrative therapy are just two amazing modalities. And if you have a chance to learn anything about those, they're great. And it sounds like even in, I didn't know that dietitians learned about that too, but it's really well, special. I take it back. Parts, additional training, not all, not all dietitians, but definitely, um, you know, for dietitians who do more of that nutrition counseling work, if anybody's got, so that's a great tip for anybody listening to like, I'm a huge fan of motivational interviewing. You know, don't be afraid to ask providers, what do you have training on? You know, like you said, if there is a specific modality that you've researched and you vibe with, look for that. Definitely, for sure. Well, Lily, this has been so good. So many golden nuggets and takeaways. And I think, you know, I encourage people listening after this episode, whether you're in your car or wherever you are, see if you can just just have some silence. Give yourself like five minutes after this episode to just really process everything that is in your thoughts. Because I don't know about you, but I have lots of thoughts right now (laughs) based on everything that you shared. So we want to wrap up as we do with all guests. What is the best thing that's happened to you this week? So being that Thanksgiving was last week when we're recording this, um, the best thing that I did last week was play with my niece, who is two, and she's adorable. And I just love seeing the world through her eyes. She's so excited about like, I asked her, like, who's your best friend? And she said, ping pong ball, which was adorable. And I just can't capture it. But, you know, just the simplicity of that really just got me thinking also. And I think reminding ourselves just like things don't have to be so serious and just like kids are just so special. That's such a special thing. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Such, such a reminder of like, it's not that bad. It'll be okay. And if our listeners or when our listeners want to connect with you to learn more, where can they, where can they find you? Where do you like to hang out? Yeah. So unfortunately you can find me on social media. Um, I am on- <laughs> The irony, it all comes back to this. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm on Instagram, but I will say that I try to schedule out my posts. So I think this is actually a transparency thing that people need to know. Like I'm not on there every day posting. Like I do set up my posts in the beginning of the month and they post. And that's like a great, another boundary you can have is just like setting, setting it and forgetting it. That's so helpful. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Throp Therapy LCSW. That's our name, Throp Therapy. You can also check out our website, thropetherapy.com. You can also direct email me. My email is lily, L-I-L-Y, at thropetherapy.com. And I respond to all my emails. You know, We have our phone number on the website and I respond to everything. So feel free to reach out if you have any follow-up thoughts or just want to connect after listening to the episode. And we will link to all those in the show notes. Lily, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Fit Friends Happy Hour. Talk to you next time.